continue on in our Nehemiah series. We are in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to round this thing out and finish uh, the chapter. Tonight, we started uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 last week, and we talked about uh, this theme, that it's a kingdom built on a book. Now, we're actually continuing that. Ezra um, was the one who entered the picture in Nehemiah chapter 8. The wall was built or finished, and uh, Ezra starts preaching the word. And these people had not heard it for a long time. And we talk about um, five things last week that the the Bible is, that it teaches us about itself. And so we're going to find uh, five more things out tonight as we finish out um, verses 9 through 18. Let me ask you a question, and um, I'll see if I can get a response from you. And just answer as quick as you can, right off the top of your head, and you don't have to give what you think is the right answer, but just your gut instinct is the Bible. Here's the question. Is the Bible about you or God? But is it about you? That's hard, isn't it? I would um, explain it that the Bible is about God, but it's for you. And maybe that's a better way to understand it. You see, uh, this is a core, core, core disposition that every person has to uh, realize in themselves. Um, And there's practical um, connections to this this disposition all over the place, like the drama in your life, or maybe you're not growing in your faith, or you're struggling, or you've been going to church for a long time, and you're like, man, things aren't changing. A lot of it might come down to this one question. Do you approach the Bible thinking that it's primarily about you or primarily about God? Like, do you have a self-centered faith or a Christ-centered faith? Are you um, wanting to align with God, or are you wanting just to be benefited by God and who he is and his power? Uh, You see, if you approach the scriptures um, for yourself, and you think that, um, not that we obviously know that we we are changed and it's kind of for us, but if you approach the scriptures thinking that the scriptures are about you, you probably will stay stagnant in your faith and you probably won't experience much change. And this is the reason why. Because you will twist scripture in that you will find yourself as the hero. And this is, this sounds maybe odd, and you're wondering, why am, why am I going down this path? This happens in churches all over the world. Many of us were raised in it, and we don't even realize it. We don't realize it. Let me give you the perfect, this is kind of the quintessential example, and maybe you've heard this before, but David and Goliath. You've heard the story, right? David beats up on Goliath. Um, who are you in this story? Like, where are you in this story? And most of us, we've heard stories of how we're, we're David, right? And, and we talk about faith, and there is a secondary teaching there about faith, obviously. That's an important part of that story. But if you find that you're David, and then you put in whatever you want out there in your life, you know, uh, getting married, or whatever is a hardship for you, um, uh, working out your marriage, or, or whatever it might be, as the Goliath of your life, and with a little bit of faith you can overcome it, like, we've completely missed the whole point of that story. Like, if we were going to see ourselves in that story, we would be the Israelites, cowering, scared, seeing that there is a David. And David, all throughout Scripture, is pointing to a greater David, and that is Jesus. And Jesus conquers Goliath, and Goliath isn't just Goliath. Goliath is sin. And we can't do anything about it. And we need him to step up. And day after day, we're faced with this overarching big issue in our lives and we can't do anything and then he comes and he saves us 
all of a sudden, like your old perspective on that story changes, your perspective of the Bible changes, and you start to see the Bible pointing not to an awesome you, but an awesome Jesus. And he's always the hero of the story. He's always the hero. And so here's what happens tonight, and we jump into Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, verses 9 through 18, is there's a tension, there's a crossroads, and you're going to hear words like weeping, 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 over and over and over again, because we see the response of the Israelites to the reading of the word of God by Ezra. And they, in and of themselves, want to throw a bit of a pity party. And we'll explain through this why they felt that way. But the leaders are telling them to take action and to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. That if you read scripture and you want to do uh, what ultimately scripture is wanting to accomplish in your life, it takes action. It takes action and not just um, hearing it. And so this is not uncommon. If you go back to um, 2 Kings chapter 22, you'll see the Israelites having been away from hearing the word of God for uh, dozens of years, having it read to them, and then all falling on their face and saying, We're horrible people. Our fathers and their fathers and their fathers have not obeyed this. And they didn't know. They were completely ignorant to what the word of God said. And it's happened several times in the Old Testament. It happens again um, here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And so we're going to find out um, what happens. Let's jump on in. Verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So picture this. Six-hour sermon. What's the response? They're just crying. They're just crying. They're crying like babies. And they said to him, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make a great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So this feast is the big context that we're in tonight. That's what's going on. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, From the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. All right, just like last week, there's five things that we're going to see about the Word of God. Number one, the Bible is for keeping, not weeping. It's for keeping, not weeping. It says, going back to verse 9, 
9 through 12. Now, keep in mind, um, this is, uh, for us, it would be October 8th. But it was this holy day, this holy convocation. Um, it's actually the Day of Atonement, but at this point, uh, they don't have the temple all set up, right? So it's not even mentioned as that day. But it's this day um, that is... Um, One of the feasts is, or, or festivals is, is that of the trumpets. And that is actually today. It's happening on this day where they would blow trumpets and they would read the word of God and they would uh, not do any work, um, but just think about the Lord that day. And that day ushers in seven more days, which is called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which is what the rest of these verses talk about. But verses 9 through 12 are talking about this one day where the word of God was read for six hours and they... Um, all fall under conviction here. And so, um, it said, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught all the people, said to him, this day is holy to the Lord. So it's that holy convocation, that feast um, or festival of the trumpets. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So they're hearing the Ten Commandments. They're hearing all of the the covenant uh, that God had with Israel through Moses about 1,000 years earlier, and they are weeping because they're realizing we, ha- we didn't even know a lot of this. We'd been in captivity for 70 years, at least prior to this. Well, let's see, 607 to 537, they were in Babylonian captivity, and, and this is uh, close to 100 years after that. So they've been far away from the word of God for a long time, and they're just now coming back to it, and they did not know that it's said to do these things, to even have these festivals or feasts. And so they're just crying because they're realizing we've been so disobedient. And yet at the same time, they're called to action. Then he said to him, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. So these are the instructions that they read about for this feast. Um, It's essentially a peace offering and a peace offering in the sacrificial system. Many of um, the people who gave it, the people who gave it would eat most of the animal. But some of the fat was just burned up for God. So it was like this fellowship meal with God. And if you were poor, then you would partner with your neighbors and sacrifice together because you wouldn't have a lamb or whatever. So, he, so the, the, the people are crying, and then the leaders are saying, but we have instructions. You're weeping because you realized for dozens of years you did not do what God said. And yet I'm telling you right now, you can do what God said. He's telling you, get your meal ready. So go, do what you're supposed to do. And they're kind of weeping, they're weeping along. And it says, for this day is holy to the Lord. It's not about you. This is the big idea. It's not about you. This is a day holy of the Lord. You could cry all day long if this day was for you. If this was your birthday party, you could cry if you want to. But it ain't your birthday party. This day is about God and not you. So don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord. Deuteronomy tells us this is a festival that is about the joy of God. And it says, if you don't have joy... Be joyful on this day. Well, I'm just not a joyful person. Be joyful on this day because it ain't about you. It ain't about you. So the Levites calmed all the people. You can picture just the moaning and groaning. 30 to 50,000 people they believed were gathered around. Picture all the crying. You ever walked into your house where you got uh, kids or you're babysitting or something and everyone's kind of crying like, oh, come on. Just ever moaning and groaning. Times that. By about 100,000. There's a whole ton of people here, and they're all bawling. 
Be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way and they did what they were told. And they made great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6. God says through Hosea the prophet, he says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They're destroyed for lack of knowledge. Several times in the Old Testament, God tells his people through prophets, priests, prophets, teach the word of God. Teach the word of God. You've got to teach the people, and we have responsibility. It takes good leaders to teach the word of God and to do what we're called to do. But it's beautiful because even though they're crying and they're at this tension here, once they know what they're supposed to do, they actually obey it. So let me ask you, are you a weeper or a keeper? Are you a weeper of the word of God or are you a keeper? These are two different responses to God's word. Both can be right. One is incomplete. The word of God is meant to be kept, to be lived, for you to actually obey it. Weeping in and of itself is not bad, but it's incomplete. When you read the word of God and you realize that there's things you haven't done that you should do, and there's things that you shouldn't do that you have done, there should be a weeping over your sin. But you don't stay there. You don't stay there. you got to understand, when they heard the word of God, they probably heard things that broke their heart in ways that we don't understand. For example, if Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 31 were read, this is the covenant of Moses. It's a covenant where God says, people of Israel, if you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. If you don't do what I say, you're going to be cursed. And cursing involves exile. Cursing involves a whole bunch of nastiness. And they realized we were in a 70-year exile, Babylonian captivity. The worst exile since we were in Egypt for 400 years. And it was our fault. I mean, picture the bad things that have happened in your life and how we've blamed God. God, where are you? Where were you? How many times they cried out to God during that time? And here they are hearing the word of God and God saying, I'm telling you way in advance, a thousand years before you do this, if you disobey me, I will let you go into exile. And they're realizing all of this junk they've probably blamed God for were self-inflicted sin and their breaking of the covenant. You ever had that revelation before? (laughs) You ever been angry at God? You ever thought, oh man, I have screwed things up in life, and I want to get into the Bible to find answers. And you get into the Bible to find out (laughs) a lot of your drama is self-inflicted, and that God warned about it. The more you dig into God's word, the more you realize everything you see in the news, all the drama you see politically, everything's pretty much foretold. There's no big secrets in humanity there's nothing new under the sun and god says if you obey things are going to go well if you don't it's not going to go well and you get to choose and we have thousands of years of human history to affirm what god was saying all along say that's the problem though is i get discouraged when i read the word of god because i'm reminded of all my failures look what the leaders did They were weeping, but the leaders say, right now, do what the best next step is. You can weep all day long, or you can keep all day long. And the word of God is meant to be kept. So you know what's right, do it. You got to do it. 
And you see in these three verses, they're pointed to God's faithfulness, not their failures. You get to choose. Tara and I, we were on a uh, trip. We left Friday morning, got home Monday night to go to Utah, uh, the church that we planted, going through some transitions. Um, and they asked us to come preach, and we just wanted to encourage them. And so it was kind of a whirlwind of uh, a few days. It's a 12-hour drive each way. And so um, we haven't had that much time in a car without Silas in a long time. We had to decide if we like each other. We got to know each other again. Um, it was literally two and a half hours in, and we both started losing our voice because we hadn't talked to each other without interruption uh, for that long in a long time. And um, Tara had a bunch of audio books, and one of them was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And so um, we had some, some light reading on the way there. Um, we were listening, and, and one of the quotes that Lewis has when he was talking about humanity and uh, our sinfulness and kind of the conundrum that we're in is he says that all sinners, all bad people, um, which would be all of us, are in need of repentance, but only good men know how to repent. And the conundrum is that if we're all bad people and we need to repent, <laughs> how can any of us know how to repent? And it was a different way of essentially saying the theological truth that we say so often, that we are dead in sin and the faith that we have can't even be mustered up by us. It says in scripture that even faith comes from God and the repentance we have can't even be mustered up by us, even though there is whatever, to whatever degree, personal accountability and responsibility, even kindness of God is what draws us to repentance, Romans 2 says. And so the idea that the person of Christ living in us is the one who teaches us repentance and gives repentance and the spirit of God living in us is the one who helps us repent. And so we are dead by ourselves spiritually, um, but Christ in us can make us repent. And so I say that to say you can choose. Um, you can choose when you read the word of God and you realize your own sin to weep or you can walk. And condemnation from the enemy is going to make you stop in your tracks. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation in Christ. And conviction and condemnation are worlds apart. Condemnation stops you in your tracks. Conviction is a heavenly father taking your hand saying, you know what's wrong, but I'm going to walk with you. And it's going to be my strength that's going to make you walk through this and to repent. You can focus on his faithfulness, not your failures. You've got to know your failures, but your focus is on his faithfulness. Number two, the Bible demands discipline. The Bible demands discipline. It says on the second day, this is key, on the second day, not the first day anymore, it's not October 8th, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So, key word being second day. Now we're moving on. How many times have you had a little bit of spiritual revival? Maybe you've thought, man, I need a word from the Lord. And so you come to church and you hear that sermon. Pastor Andy's preaching, and you're like, wow, this is good. I needed to hear that today. And you know you've got a bit of a spiritual high, and you feel like maybe God answered a situation that you're in and questions that you have. He gave you the answers, and you're like, okay, we can do something. But come Monday morning, you don't do something. And how often do we settle for the lesser revival? Always seek the greater revival. God wants to do, God's presence in your life is unlimited. He wants to overwhelm you every day. You can seek him, you can have him. He's not holding himself back from you. It's all there. But we get a little taste of the goodness of God, a little taste of the word of God, and how many times do we bail? And it says, the, the heads of the houses, 
People who are supposed to be men of God, they say, you know what? It's day number two. We had a six-hour sermon yesterday. We don't necessarily feel like we could use another six-hour sermon. But we're waking up, and we're coming back to the well, and we go and drink. Because this is what's going to nourish us. And so they're consistent. They've got some discipline, and they keep on going. Let me ask you, and, and this should be noticed. Uh, this should be noted. We're going to see in a bit. They find some awesome stuff. If you find opening up the Word of God uh, that you're like, hey, this was really powerful, it continues to be powerful. Um, so don't stop. Let me ask you a question. How many of you like participation trophies? Any of you have one? You ever got one for anything? You can be honest. Just, right? You ain't got to be scared. You ever got a participation trophy? Do you like them? Yay or nay? I see several no's. Anyone, anyone like them? Anyone, I mean, just a little bit? There's an appeal to them, right? All you got to do is show up. Show up for seventh grade soccer. Regardless of whether you win, you get it. What, what do we not like about participation trophies? Tell me. Why? Right. And it doesn't require effort. It doesn't require effort. Like there's something in us, even for certainly as Americans, because we love winning in America, but just as humans, where we realize things that are of value take effort. And there's no part of our lives that fight against that outside of the conveniences of living in America and being spoiled. Like, if you want healthy relationships, you got to work hard. If you want a good job and you want to be known as a good worker, you got to work hard. And spiritually, we just have this um, laziness about us from our sinful flesh that, that says, I want fed, 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 but I don't want to do the work. That's understandable. You see in Scripture about our sinful nature, and you're like, well, I can understand how we get that way. The problem is we shouldn't stay that way. Because here's the thing. Church doesn't give away any participation trophies. I, um, I got a friend in Utah. He's probably going to be listening to this. And you'll know who he is. We stayed with him this weekend, um, him and his family. And... They've got, um, there's not like a ton of moisture in Utah, but some folks have pretty decent lawns. And in their backyard and outside of their backyard fence, they have a good chunk of weeds. And they have been renting a goat for the last couple summers. They got some friends who have goats, and they um, raise up these goats for rodeos. And but when it's not rodeo season, like what are you gonna, what are you gonna do with these goats? They need to eat and whatnot, so they let them have it, and they um, have them on a leash, and he can go. The goat can go within like a ten foot radius, and the goat will eat the weeds and all the nasty stuff in the yard. And so he's telling us about this goat. And we can tell he's kind of frustrated because every day he's got to go out and switch the position of this goat. Like he's got to put the stake in the ground somewhere else, all around his lawn, as. He wants to get rid of these weeds, and he's got to move the goat. But he says, when he goes and gets the goat, if you don't have the goat tied down, then the goat will go and start to eat the trees. And if the goat's around you, 
then the goat will eat your pants. And he says, if the goat is tied around something that could potentially, any way, shape, or form, get entangled with something else, like his old Jeep or Bronco sitting out back, um, or a trailer or anything, that he'll find himself weaved in and out of this to get every little weed that he's just meh over and over trying to, you know, get someone's attention so he can go and get free. He ties himself up. I can tell you that great frustration. The next morning, uh, Sunday, um, of course, I had the sermon on my brain, so I was already up, but it was a little before 6 a.m., and I hear this sound outside, just this nasty, like, kind of whine. And I thought, that is a worse sounding donkey that I've ever heard. It's this goat. I thought, man, that thing does that like every morning. That's going to be, that is, oh, that's annoying. Then after a while, I heard someone out there, clink, 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 chain. I looked out the window. My friend was doing what he does every day, moving the goat around. Moving his goat. What a pain. He's talking about how he's got a German shepherd a couple times. The German shepherd's just kind of freaked out on the goat. He's got to separate the German shepherd from the goat. He's got this goat. And it's a bit of a pain. But if he wants his weeds gone, he's got to move the goat. There's nothing convenient about the goat. See, God's planted good seeds in your heart. He wants good soil where those seeds take root and grow up and produce fruit. But you got sin. You got weeds in your life. And the word of God has the power to help you to repent of those sin and to overcome sin in Christ. But there's probably not going to be anything convenient about it. And I know if you've been like me, if you commit to studying the word, if you say, you know what, for the next two weeks at this time, seven in the morning, I'm going to get up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible. Then all of a sudden, for the first time in maybe years or ever at seven in the morning, you're going to have phone calls that you never had before. You're going to get text messages saying, hey, someone hap- something happened over here. Tend to it. You're going you're gonna to all of a sudden um, want to eat breakfast when maybe you didn't eat breakfast before. Uh, things are going to pop up and you're going to experience spiritual warfare because the enemy does not want you in the word of God. But it requires discipline. But you've got to push through. If you have this mindset about you, I'll say this before we move on, that you need to fit the Bible into your life, you've already gone wrong. The Bible is not meant to be fit into anyone's life. The Bible is meant for your life to reorient around it. And you have to look at tomorrow morning, Thursday morning. You wake up, you say, okay, I got, I got to go to work and I got to do this, I got to do this. Scratch it all. And you think, no, I got to read God's word. I got to be in the word. And then all those other things can come after that. You reorient your day and your life around the word of God. You don't try to cram the word of God into your life. It doesn't work that way. It'll be hard for you to ever be disciplined because you'll find that your day will squeeze the word of God out if it's not number one. Number three, the Bible changes your mind. The Bible changes a lot of things. Your mind is one of them. Verse 14 through 16 say, And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they were disciplined in the word and they had new revelation. This is going from the feast uh, and the festival of trumpets to now the feast of booths or tabernacles. And it's a whole nother world. It's something brand new to them. They didn't know about this. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. 
Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. All right, so they have no clue. But now they learn. There's a whole other feast that we didn't even know about. It's a seven-day feast. Here's what the feast or uh, this festival of tabernacles was. Um, It was a seven-day reminder of the Exodus. That when they left, they celebrate the Passover meal as a reminder of God's provision and them leaving. And um, when they left and they were in the wilderness and they didn't have homes, they were in tents. And so basically, they go on the roof of their houses. Many of them had flat roofs back then, right, in the Middle East, still today, many do. Um, they would go all over the city, and they would um, set up these tents. And these weren't just ordinary tents. These are tents made out of stuff that they, like, they would find in the wilderness, leafy branches, and they have tents. So if you went out in your backyard, and you brought your kids, and you just set up a tent and said, we're just going to sleep out here for seven days, um, it would probably remind you pretty quick that you're thankful to have a home, <laughs> wouldn't it? And that's what this was meant to do was they were not yet in the promised land uh, when they were obviously in the wilderness. And it was a reminder that God is faithful and God has not only given them a heavenly home that we have, we know as believers, but they were uh, yet to be in the promised land and they would obviously be in the promised land. Jerusalem now is um, where they are and this is part of the promised land. And so this is a reminder of God's faithfulness. This is also repentance. When you think of repentance, what do you think of? Good or bad? Fun, not fun? People think repentance, they think of just a buzzkill. Repentance is beautiful. Like Romans 12, 1 says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. When your mind changes about God and who he is and who you are in light of who he is and how he created you to be, that's repentance. Repentance is not just a change of behavior because you went to church and someone says, you need to do different. If that's the case, then everyone who adheres to a religion of any kind is repentant. But we know repentance is deeper than just your actions and your behavior changing. There's got to be a core motivation. Not only in your heart, because you have a new spiritual heart in Christ, one that wants to please God and know the things of God and love God, but a new mind, one that's being renewed, the mind of Christ. And so when you dig into the Word of God and you learn more things about God and who He is, this isn't just for your daily edification. This is for your mind becoming brand new, changing all the time. I was in Matthew 23 this morning, just in studying in my own time with the Lord. And it was like I'd never read that chapter before. I don't know if you've ever been there where you find uh, some verses where you're like, I don't even remember that. I know I've read this like 10 times. I do not remember that. You're kind of blown away by it. You're like, wow, this is something new about God. I either didn't know or I had forgotten. See, I do remember, though. I remember um, just like this festival reminded them of God's faithfulness. I remember God's faithfulness. Let me ask you, though, how? For them, so much of what they did in the Jewish walk of life, was built around festivals and feasts, all remembering God and his faithfulness. Like it was, they partied a lot 
And it was all reminders of things God had done. You guys, we don't have this built into our society. We have the 4th of July. We have Memorial Day. We have different celebrations like that. But in general, we don't have a bunch of stuff. I'm talking monthly that reminds us of God's faithfulness. It's not built into the American way of life. But the Jewish people, this was, this was what it meant to be Jewish. In a lot of ways was to partake in a ton of feasts. And they didn't last like a day. They last many times seven days or a whole month. I mean, think about it. If you did this with your friends for six or seven days, you go out to a tent just to remember God's faithfulness and giving you a home. That'd be a big deal. And this is just something that they practiced. But what built-in reminders do you have? You see, everything reminds us of something. I remember remember a gal who I saw in the parking lot. She pulled up and she, um, this was years ago, she just stayed in her van. And I could tell she's probably a middle-aged lady uh, just sitting in a minivan. And I thought, what is going on? And eventually she came in and she said she didn't know why she was there. I'd never met her before. And we talked, and she had seven or eight kids. Her husband was studying in ministry, and they had been a part of a bunch of churches, and he had never landed that ministry job that he thought he would have. And she was to a point in life, half her kids were in college, half of them not yet, where she thought, when's it ever going to happen for us? When's it ever going to happen? We don't hardly make much money. She started crying. She talked about how the roof of their house uh, where they were currently living, they had moved from state to state, and they'd recently moved here, and they were working um, for uh, a landowner who had given them this house, and, the, and the, the roof was leaking, and it was a small house, and it was just not how she pictured life going. And I listened. And all I could think of was everything that you're complaining about It's also a reminder of God's faithfulness. And she said, I guess this, this isn't what I pictured. This isn't like I, I figured God would provide. And I said, when is he not provided? And we walked through everything that she has in her life and God's faithfulness in those things. And I saw after the conversation turned in that direction, her countenance change, and she started to have a little more understanding and perspective. Sometimes we just need that. Look at your own life and look at the reminders. When you see your kids, do you see anger and annoyance because they're annoying and they make you angry? Or do you see an answer to all those prayers when you're saying, God, give me a baby, someone in your image, so I can raise them to know you? Because the same kid that annoys you is the same kid that you prayed for. When you see your job, are you reminded of the fact that you don't have the job you really want? Or are you reminded that when you were broke, God gave you this job when you had nothing? When you see your house, are you reminded of, hey, I'm still one step away from the home I want to end up in? Or are you reminded that you don't have a home on earth? And the fact that you even got a place uh, to to lay your head tonight is a blessing because you're a citizen of heaven. And you already, because you're sleeping under a roof, got more than Jesus had when he was on earth. That house, those kids, that spouse, those scars, and certainly the word of God. Remind us of his faithfulness. Number four, the Bible changes your behavior. 
changes your behavior. And verse 17 says, And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, so that's the exile, the Babylonian captivity, made booths, these tents, and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. So they, they hadn't done it. And there was very great rejoicing. So Jeshua, um, this is, um, in Hebrew, it's just Joshua, son of Nun. This is um, the Joshua, the one who led him into the promised land. 900 years, 900 or so years before this is when Jeshua, Joshua, existed. So picture, for a thousand years, you were disobedient. And all of a sudden, you realize, wow, we're doing something. We're celebrating something that we hadn't celebrated in a long, long time. A long, long time. Now, for those of you who, who dig in uh, to Scripture a little bit more, you'll see what seems like a bit of a contradiction here. Because the Bible actually says um, that Hezekiah, who was a few hundred years earlier than this, and... Um, Solomon, uh, among others, they actually um, celebrated this feast, this feast that we're talking about. But there was two feasts that were basically one and the same, and it's called the Feast of Weeks, or Ingathering, which was all built around harvest, and the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, these tents, these booths. And they were done basically at the same time, and they were interchangeable. Um, But for hundreds of years... They had, not the hundred years prior to this, but before that, they had practiced or celebrated the Feast of Weeks. And so they had celebrated first fruits and harvest and whatnot, but they hadn't celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. So 900 years, and they realized, whoa, we had kind of missed the boat. We didn't even know about this. And now it changed. But instead of being sad, instead of being like 900 years of disobedience, they were joyful. They rejoiced. There was very great rejoicing because they realized not only are we commanded to rejoice on this day, but we're just thankful because now we are obedient. We're going to do what God says. Some people say, well, I don't like reading the word of God because it's a bit of a buzzkill. Number one, if you're trying to skirt around the commands to do what only to do what, what you want, but to be good with God at the same time, that's just not the faith. That's not how it works. We give our lives to Christ, and we're brand new creatures, and so we start from scratch as a brand new creation. And so it's not about trying to get some of the old uh, sinful junk from our past life accepted into our new life. That's not a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus says, you know what? I want to repent from all of it. And I want what Christ has for me, and it's going to be brand new. It's going to be obedient. So we're not looking uh, to get as close to the ledge as we can. That's not the heart of Christ. It's not the mind of Christ either. But also, I think it should be said, it feels great to live different. Tell me, when you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, doesn't it feel great? I know a boy who's going through misery right now misery in life. Called me up this morning, excited as can be, because he said that someone in his life who he doesn't talk much to called him out of the blue, telling him that their spouse had a stroke. And he doesn't know why they called him, because he doesn't feel like he's a spiritual leader in anyone's life. He's just trying to get it together right now in his own drama. And he said he talked for 20 minutes about the Lord and about this guy turning his hope to Jesus. He said, oh, oh, 
you should pray. And he said he hung up. He said two or three minutes of just pure conviction. Of, I should have prayed with him. Why didn't I pray with him? He said he, got, he just called the guy back up and prayed. The guy was weeping the whole time. And he was so excited, he just wanted to tell me. He's like, I think God used me. I was like, yes, this feels good. Like, I talk to this person all the time about drama and things that have happened to him that, that, that's very sad, very sad. And yet he couldn't help but just smile. I could tell over the phone, this dude was just rejoicing because he did exactly what he knew God wanted him to do. And even when he didn't, after two or three minutes, he said, you know what, I'm going to call back and be awkward and pray for this dude. It feels good to do the will of the Lord. We need to shout that from the rooftops. This society, this country, do you realize when people look at the church, they think you're in chains. They think we're in bondage. When people don't know about Christianity and they just see us as religion, they lump us all together with every other religion and they say this. This is how they feel towards us. And if you've got non-believers in your life, you've probably seen them to some degree look at you this way and say, oh, why would you, you go to church? Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you do that to yourself? You ever had someone just almost feel sorry for you when they hear about your faith? Because the very thing that you know brings freedom is the very thing they think brings bondage. That's the great irony. Because we're saying, we got freedom in Christ. And they're saying, why would you be in some religious prison where you got to like follow the rules and do all this stuff? Well, you have no idea. You have no idea. And someone needs to tell them, it's great to do the will of God. It's great. It's more exhilarating than any early morning workout you've ever done where you didn't want to do it, and then you finally did it, and then you're like, wow, this feels great. This is the best way to start your day. When you do the will of God, man, it's right where you're supposed to be. You realize this is what I was created for. This is what I was created for. If you ever lead someone to Jesus, you won't have a greater high in this life. If you get to pray with someone, after telling about the Lord, and they say, I want, I want to follow Jesus. And you say, well, I don't have any special magic potion for you, but we can just submit our lives to Jesus right now, and I'll pray with you. You, you, won't, tell me, you won't care about your mortgage. <laughs> you won't be asking about your car payment after that. You ain't going to be discontent in life for a bit. You're going to be pumped. Most Christians, though, do not experience that. Why? Because for a lot of them, their behavior doesn't change. They stay in the first part of this passage where they weep. And their connection to the church is that they know and they have some false sense of accomplishment by weeping, not by keeping the word of God. Well, if I just, am a, if I just come face to face with the word of God because I come to church every now and then and I realize, I know there's a great hope here and I know I'm not very good, then by feeling sorry for ourselves and having a pity party, we feel like somehow that pleases God. And so people show up to church and feel conviction and instead of acting in obedience, they just feel like that in and of itself was the obedience. That's not, that's not obedience. That's conviction. And that's a replacement for Jesus dying on the cross in your place. That somehow if we feel guilty, then we've paid the price for our own sins. That's the very core of what being a non-believer is. Not a Christian. And yet the churches are filled with them. Your behavior's got to change. It's like this. I don't have much time, so I'm going to have to 
move quickly through this. Uh, Silas, he um, he was with my my mom and dad uh, the last few days from Thursday until yesterday. And I love grandparents. We got one of them sitting back here, so I got to be nice. Um, but I don't know if you know this or not about grandparents. Grandparents are not the same uh, when it comes to job description as parents. Like to be a grandparent means that you get to do all the things that you wish a parent could do, but you can't because you have to be responsible as a parent. And as grandparents don't have to be responsible. There's an element of truth to that. I mean, yeah, I wish that they were, um, well, we'll just leave it there. And so um, Silas went to grandma and grandpa's house and we know that, man, my parents let him, let them get away with things, things that they never let me get away with. And, and even when we're in their presence, and I love my mom and dad, uh, and I'll say, Silas, hey, bud, hey, stop, do this. And, you know, my dad will be like, oh, it's okay, just let them do whatever. It's like, <laughs> whatever, take him. We love you guys, go, we'll pick him up and salvage this child when you um, gets back. And so we know there's a transition period when grandma and grandpa drop him off and him getting back into a routine. And one night, uh, we called, we FaceTimed with him, and Silas came into the picture. He'd been downstairs with my dad watching TV, and he came up to get some snacks. It's like way too late, and he shouldn't be eating snacks. Um, And my mom said he could have a snack. And even on the phone, I was like, Silas, are you obeying? Are you being good? And at first, he was kind of excited. He's like, oh, mom and dad are there. But then, like, immediately, he ran downstairs because he saw that we were there, and he knew, like, if, if he's in the room... I'm going to like tell him, hey, make sure you're being obedient. Make sure you're showing love and these things. And like just me represented on the phone. Like he's like, yeah, that sounds like authority. I'm right out of here. So he leaves. A couple days later, they drop him off. And we start last night. We start going through this process. If you're a parent, you know this process where you're trying to get him back into structure, back into routine. He's just pure rebellion. And he was sitting in the bathtub. And I said, buddy, he had sinned in like 50 different ways. And he had lied to us. And he looked up at me and he smiled and said, he lied about something. And I said, okay, so you're going to finish this bath real fast. And I said, you're going to be done in 60 seconds, and then you're going to do some time out after this. We're going to talk about this. And he started crying, and he put his big old lip up. And I said, what? And he said, when I did bad things with grandma and grandpa, there were no consequences. And I said, well, it stinks for you. Because <laughs> now there are, and this is life. And I said, if you go out into public and you do whatever you want around the police officers, do you think there's going to be consequences? Yes. I said, man, what, you, what makes you think you're in, in my home when we follow Jesus? Like there ain't consequences for sin. And we, we talked through it and whatnot. Um, here's what we found over the years. Is he will rebel, rebel, rebel. And Tara and I will be like, what is going on? He's like, the, it's like the worst thing ever. And then when we give him structure and we say, here's how to live and we're going to honor God and here's obedience and we're going to do that, there's a point where he kind of turns. He kind of, there's like a tipping point where he submits to it and then like actually has like love and joy. It's like he's begging for leadership. He's begging for authority, not only from God, but from his parents. And we know this is going to happen. So we always have to push through in our parenting and make sure we get to that. But it is like pulling teeth to get there. But when you get there, you know. It's not sad anymore. It's beautiful. And I'm I'm encouraging you, push through in your life with Christ. It's like pulling up the Bible and you're like, oh, this is convicting. You're like, oh, do I really want to reorient my life around this? It's like pulling teeth for a while. But there's a tipping point where you got to push through. You know where I fell in love with the Word of God? I fell in love with the Word of God 10 years ago when I was a single dude. And on Friday nights in my little tiny house in Hutchinson, Kansas, when I remember thinking to myself, I can go to the bars, I can meet people, I can drink, I can do what all my friends are doing. I got no one around me right now. 
I, I had money, I was doing fine, and I had that opportunity. And I remember when I placed my faith in Jesus and him prompting me saying, nope, you're going to stay right here and you're going to get to know me. And on Friday nights, I would just sit there and I would read the word of God and I would read all of this for the first time ever and it was brand new. And I remember at first I felt like, I'm weird. I am like the weirdest guy ever. This is what I would have made fun of people for in high school if I knew someone was on a Friday night staying home from a bar so they can read the Bible. And now I'm like wanting this. And I found myself like really wanting it. And I found myself starting to obey it. And I just found myself like enjoying it. It's like, oh, it's Friday night. Like I get to read the word alone in my house at 22 years old. And I fell in love with the Bible. I fell in love with Jesus. Push past the tipping point in your life. There's joy in repentance. Last but not least, the Bible is sufficient. And it says this in verse 18. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. So that, remember, that's the law of Moses from a thousand years earlier, the Ten Commandments and all of those uh, commandments that came with it. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly. And on that day, they would just focus on the Lord the whole time, according to the rule. According to the rule. The Bible is sufficient. That's the fifth thing that we see. So day by day, it takes steps. You've got to walk. Consistent devotion is key. The Hebrews were known to the surrounding nations as people of the book. Out of everything you're known for, how much would you love to be known for being a person of the book? That'd be a beautiful thing. See, I'm overwhelmed with life. I want to be disciplined. I want to get into the word, but I've got so much going on. I've got drama. I've got heartache. I've got things to focus on. Listen, there is a belief deep down in the soul of every human being that when we get stressed out and overwhelmed, that what we really need is to be less stressed out and overwhelmed. That is not what you need. You need to be overwhelmed with something greater than what you're overwhelmed with. You need to be overwhelmed by awe in God. You need to shift your focus from your circumstances to God and so that you have proper perspective of life. The goal of life is not to have or avoid hard times. Goal is to glorify God and to have such a focus on him that you're overwhelmed by a better thing, the Lord himself. Ultimately, you got to be, this is the beauty of the Bible, You've got to be constantly adjusting your perspective to the bigger picture. Let me, let me as I wrap this up, let me make a, a, just some connections. It says this, day by day, from the first day to the last, so the seven-day feast of the tabernacle, he read from the book of the law. Now, Deuteronomy will tell you that it was every seventh year of this festival. Not every year, every seventh year that they would read as a whole group they would read the book of the law. They would read passages every year. But the book of the law, the covenants, and it says in there because the reason God wants this done in Deuteronomy is because he wants their kids to always remember so that like you don't go 50 years without knowing why we're really doing what we're doing. They could tell him, well, it's about tents and it's about this exodus, but he wants them to go back to the law of Moses. The law of Moses is different than just the exodus. It's the whole sacrificial system. It's everything. It's that we're sinners. The sacrificial system points to three big things. Sin is really bad. God is really holy. And we need a savior. (laughs) That's what it's all pointing to. 
And so every seventh year, God's like, okay, I want you to do this special thing in this feast where you take some time in the word, not just any part of the word, the law of Moses is read. So they can see the big picture of why they're even doing this festival. So in your daily walk, when you're just opening up the Bible and you're doing your daily devotions, you're like, okay, that's interesting, that's good, and you get a little word for the day, that's good, I want you to have that, but I want you to always remember the big picture of the Bible, what it's all pointing to, and it will change your perspective on a daily basis. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you need to know I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He didn't come with a different Bible. He is the word incarnate. And when they were struggling with the word, the Old Testament, in John 5, Jesus tells them, y'all, you guys, you search when you're in the weeds. You search in the scriptures. Because in them you think you have eternal life. But they bear witness to me. He's saying, you see this whole Old Testament? It's all, it's all pointing to me. It's all pointing to me. In Luke 24, after Jesus was raised from the dead, He's walking with his disciples. He says this after, I mean, think about the death, resurrection of Jesus and all that it means, all that it means. And this is what, this is the first thing Jesus is telling these disciples he's with. And he says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets opened their, he taught them the scriptures concerning himself. And later on in the same chapter, he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, where they're at. They're here having a feast of these, 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 tabber, these, these tents and they're thinking about tents and they're thinking about the Exodus and God saying, I always want you to think about the big picture. You're not just in an Exodus because because you did something bad and I'm telling you to go somewhere. No, you were in slavery. And ultimately, there's a bigger slavery, a slavery to sin. And this whole thing, every prophet I've ever sent you, the whole law, all of it's pointing to something more than festivals. It's pointing to your need for a savior and the one who came not to abolish all the stuff I've talked about and said, let's do something new, but to fulfill it. He's the one it's all pointing to. And when Jesus is walking with people on earth, he says, let me tell you, the scriptures are all about me. They're about me. And they're like, well, we're trying to find eternal life and we can't quite find exactly what we're supposed to do they're all pointing to me and when he rises from the dead he says i can tell you anything in the world let me tell you this everything about moses and the law and the prophets is about me and it pointed to my life my death my resurrection it's all about jesus it's all about jesus this is why we find life and you can hear a preacher you can hear a preacher tell you about it but you got to taste and see this is why we love the Word of God. We don't, we don't just love it because it's a book. We don't worship pages, but we worship the very words that come out of God's mouth because Jesus says this. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but the very words that come out of God's mouth. And in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil tempts him and says what? You're hungry because you've been on a 40-day fast? Take these stones. If you're the Son of God, take these stones. Turn them into bread. Let me ask you this. Are you trying to make stones bread? Are you trying to take things out here that aren't life-giving and making them life-giving while neglecting the very thing that is life-giving? Because it was in the very next verse that Jesus says, no. Haven't you read? Man doesn't live on bread alone, but the very word that comes out of the mouth of God. This is life-giving. This is is sufficient. 
as a Christian, you will have a million opportunities to get sidetracked with things that seem life-giving. It's good to be with other believers. It's good to practice the spiritual disciplines. It's good to, to, to come to a worship service and to sing. All of it's good and to whatever degree life-giving. But if you neglect the word of God, you are neglecting the wellspring of life. Because it's not just words and rules and commandments. It's a father's heart for his kids. And it all points to Jesus and our relationship with him. Let's pray.